Thank you for listening to our Truth in Life podcast. This season, we will survey the Bible's unfolding story of redemption. From Genesis to Revelation, every book points to Christ and edifies His church. For more information on our church, visit ChristTheWord.com. All right, Exodus. At the end of Genesis, you may remember from last week, they were in Egypt, right? They were living their best life in Egypt. Things were going pretty well. They had gotten through the famine thanks to Joseph and thanks to God's providence. They made it through the famine. They were alive. They weren't, you know, languishing off to the east. They had made it to Egypt. They were probably enjoying a lot of things in Egypt at that time. We think of Egypt, we know what's coming, right? If, hopefully most of you know. Um, Egypt was a much, much different place. I'm sure they had big city amenities, you know, just a lot more infrastructure, that sort of thing. So they were living a different life there and it was going well. We're picking up this week in Exodus it is 350 years later. That is, for us, like the turn of the 18th century. You can check me with your calculator, 2023 minus 350. Okay, so that's the U.S., just to give you a frame of reference, the U.S. at that time was just a bunch of colonies. So... We were, it was after the Mayflower and all of that, but it was before the United States was the United States. It was, you know, colonies in the Northeast, down to Virginia, that sort of thing. So that's the type of time frame we're talking about here. It's a long time. Um, and Exodus is all about God miraculously delivering them from this. So things have made a serious turn, right? It was happy. It was going pretty well at the end of Genesis, but it's been a long time. They've gone from 70 people to 2 million people roughly, and the Egyptians had grown to hate them. The Egyptians had enslaved them. The Egyptians didn't trust them. Uh, they were persecuting God's people. Um, meanwhile, they're just languishing, remembering the covenant with their fathers, but this is a long time down the road, 350 years. Just think, the people, the colonists 350 years ago here in North America, we don't feel any connection to them. I mean, it's history book stuff. We know about them, but that's it. I don't feel any connection to those people. I've talked to a few people in the church who have traced their lineage back. I mean, that's pretty rare though. 350 years is a long time. They have, my point is they have really set up shop there. They're, this, they're many generations removed from anyone who was longing to get back where they were. This is home. It's, it's as much their home as the Egyptians, but they're being persecuted. The Egyptians have them under their, under their boot and they're making them work, um, work hard in the fields and building stones, all of this. So the times have changed. In fact, the book of Exodus opens uh, saying, now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. It's an interesting statement because there had been many, many generations of kings who didn't know Joseph. But apparently they still knew of Joseph. His reputation lingered. And, you know, no doubt you had the Egyptians, you had the Israelites living, to, living together, slightly different geographic areas, and I'm sure some mingling. 
But um, the people knew, well, hey, we've got Egyptians, we have Israelites. How did this come about? So they knew of Joseph, but he's a distant memory. Um, I think when Moses says there arose a king who did not know Joseph, what he's saying is that no one cared anymore. No one had the respect for him. He wasn't held in high regard. At this point, you had the Egyptians, and they are just stomping on God's people. They're enslaved, they're distrusted, they're persecuted. So Joseph was the deliverer who brought them to Egypt. That was deliverance from the famine, so they didn't perish um, in the promise, what would be the promised land. So Joseph was the deliverer who brought them to Egypt, and Moses, in this book, rises to become the deliverer who brings them out. All right, people usually divide Moses' life into three parts. Many of you have, are familiar with this. 40 years in Egypt, 40 years in Midian, and 40 years as deliverer. It's just a helpful framework, I think, to have in your mind. Um, we'll, we'll visit each of those a little bit more as we move on here. All right, let's, let's go. Let's go through this. I don't think we need that. I've got an outline. It's up here on the screen. It's on your sheet. Um, Remember last week, there were, we, we divided it into two main sections, it being Genesis. Genesis into two main sections. You had events, four events, and then four leaders. Four and four, hopefully that helps you remember it. Hopefully that just helps you categorize things in your mind when you have that framework. So two parts to Genesis, four events, four leaders. This I've divided into four sections but it's kind of still two, okay? These two take place in Egypt. And these two are in the wilderness, okay? So four parts, slavery, confrontation, liberation, and then law and order. I know many people as they, maybe you start reading the Bible at the beginning of the year and you, you have a goal, you're going to get through it in a year. If you're like a lot of people, you kind of fall off right about here. So my challenge I think this week is to help us understand and apply all of this stuff, one, two, and three, when you guys know these stories. I want, my goal for today is to have us all leave here seeing Exodus as more than a series of stories. Um, so this is how I've divided it up. Slavery, confrontation, liberation, law and order. The first two take place in Egypt. The second two take place in the wilderness. All right, so let's just walk, walk through it. Um, I mentioned earlier, God's people had gone from favored guests to persecuted occupiers. And the Egyptians, those leaders, they feared the numbers. They feared all the people, two, roughly two million men, women, and children. That's potentially a big threat. So they've come to really fear the Israelites, mostly because of, their, because of their numbers. So they understood that the force of an army that could form from these people could be a big threat to them. So they implemented measures they thought would influence the birth rate. They gave them a lot of work. So the Israelites are building and performing hard manual labor, mortar, brick, field labor. They have quotas to meet every day. They're difficult quotas. 
Um, it's not a pleasant working arrangement. This is just slavery. So when that grueling labor strategy doesn't work for limiting the birth rate and keeping the numbers low, when that doesn't work, the new pharaoh, the one who rose, who didn't know or have any regard for Joseph, he goes nuclear. He orders the midwives to murder all the male children born to the Israelites. Murder all the boys. Can, can you imagine what that would be like? So many mothers in here, so many fathers in here. You don't have to be even a mother or a father to get that. But really, let that sink in. Do you think they would do that willingly? Do you think they would do that anywhere close to willingly? I mean, this is a huge reaction on Pharaoh's part to say, we're going to kill all the boys for a period of time. We're, that'll suppress the, the numbers. The midwives, though, they feared God, and they're famous to this day for that heroism. So they let the boys live. They didn't do what they were commanded to do. And they had this story they came up with. They just said, well, the Hebrew women give birth faster than the Egyptians. So we can't get here in time. It's not a plausible story, I don't think, but that's what they said. But they feared God. The Exodus specifically says they feared the Lord. So they're famous to this day. We look up to them to this day for that. So into this dreadful situation, a boy is born to a descendant of Levi, which is very significant, but it kind of wasn't significant at that time, right? Keep your, the chronology straight in your head. There was nothing significant about Levi uh, at that point. That's coming later in the book. But a boy was born to a descendant of Levi. He, he lives, the midwife let him live, his mother took care of him, kept him hidden for three months. That's easy to do with the newborn, it's not so easy as, as he gets older. So she, she hid him in a basket in the river knowing that he would be found. He's discovered by Pharaoh's daughter, rescued, um, and amazingly was able to be raised by his own birth mother in the house of Pharaoh, no less. So that, that's amazing. He receives all the benefits of royalty, education, the best food, all of, all of the benefits that go along with being part of a royal family, basically. He receives all of those benefits, and that provides what he would need later on as God calls him. There are a couple turning points in Moses' life. I would say the first two happens when he sees an Egyptian guard beating an Israelite. So Moses, he's a, he's a grown man now, We've, we're moving quickly. Um, this is a turning point because he, he goes in this moment from a child of privilege, just enjoying all of that, to a fugitive because when he sees this Israelite being beaten, apparently the only way to restrain him was to kill the guy. So Moses killed him. And the following day, Moses saw a couple Israelites fighting. So yesterday, an Egyptian and an Israelite, he kills the Egyptian. Today, it's two Israelites fighting. Moses intervenes, you know, he's not planning to kill anybody today. He intervenes, but in the process, he finds out that the killing that he did of the Egyptian is known. He thought it was unknown, nobody had seen it. He finds out that it's known, he believes it's widely known, so he has no choice but to flee Egypt. He ends up, I don't have a map of this, but um, you guys can picture Egypt. The Red Sea is the, the more or less the eastern boundary. 
he ends up in Midian, which is over the Red Sea, and I don't think we know for sure, but the maps that I've consulted look like it's over the Red Sea to the east and a little south. It's wilderness. It's a lot of that area is where they're going to end up wandering. And we think that Midian includes Mount Sinai, which is where this, where this book ends. So that's where he ends up. He settles down with a priest named Jethro. A priest of what? I'm not sure. He turns out to be a good guy, but I don't, I don't know what he was a priest of, but he is a priest. Um, Moses marries his daughter, and they have two sons. And this takes up 40 years. We don't know a lot more about what happens there, but it's 40 years. So he's gone from about a 40-year-old man. Um, I almost said about my age, but I'm closer to 50 than 40. So he's in the ballpark of my age. And when he goes there and when he leaves, when the next turning point happens, he's an old man. I'm looking to see how many we have any 80-year-olds in here? I don't think so. Okay. Um, we don't know much else about that, but he, he gets in with, with Jethro. He marries his daughter, has a couple sons, um, and he's a shepherd. He's just living and working in this wilderness as a shepherd. That brings him to the second turning point, the burning bush. You guys are familiar with that story dramatic story he's dramatically called to serve so another turning point in his life first turning point he goes from a favored son to um, a fugitive second turning point he is being called by God so God tells him that he has heard the cry of the Israelites in their bondage and he remembered his covenant with Abraham Isaac and Jacob I can't overstate the significance of that. So the burning bush is one of those stories that's not just a story. Uh, you, you know, our kids learn it when they're, when they're young, and um, I'm not sure that we have a real appreciation for the solemnity, solemnity of that moment. It's not merely God appearing out of, out of the blue to send Moses on this on this mission. It's much more than that. It's the next step in redemption. This is God remembering his covenant. All these years later, good situation turns into a bad situation, generation after generation, and the Israelites, no doubt many of them, have completely forgotten about the covenant. But God, he says, Moses says, God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So God briefs Moses on the plan. Moses is reluctant, but God says he's equipped him, gives him special powers to serve as signs to the Israelites and to Pharaoh. Remember the signs with the staff and with his cloak and the, that whole thing. So Moses was reluctant. He lacked confidence, but with his brother Aaron, he returns to Egypt, visits Pharaoh, explains that they need to go into the wilderness to worship. Does that seem like a believable story? I mean, it's a total lie. I, I don't know, people in ethics classes debate, was this okay to do? I mean, obviously it's okay, it's God's plan, but I mean, that is not believable. All these years they've been in Egypt, they've never had to go into the wilderness to worship. You know, I, I don't think there was much worship going on, but all of a sudden, all two million people need to go into the wilderness to worship. Pharaoh knows what's going on, and so he's not, okay with that plan. 
In fact, he responds by increasing their workload and the people immediately react against Moses. Now they're angry at Moses because their supplies have been reduced, their quota has been increased. So Moses talks to God. I'm sure Moses is having some doubts now too. He talks to God and God reassures him and gives him a bigger look at the plan, more inside look at the plan. So he's, the, Moses knows that God has called him to deliver the people out, but what God tells him now is that he's not only remembered his covenant, um, the, to, in, in one sense, but he, he is giving them the land. We made a big deal out of that last week, that that was a huge part of the covenant, the land. So now God tells Moses, not only going to deliver them from Egypt, but I'm giving you the land. Um, Pharaoh, again, is not okay with this. And so this, you guys are familiar, the cycle of the plagues begins. So God, through Moses and Aaron, delivers a series of nine plagues. I know it's ten plagues, but I've divided it on your outline into nine and then the one. Um, they're all devastating to Pharaoh, to all the Egyptians, to the land, to even to the animals. Uh, each time, Moses and Aaron deliver a demand, demand to leave. They issue a warning that bad stuff is coming if Pharaoh doesn't grant them the request. And then each time Pharaoh refuses. And then you have the plague. And then after the, in the midst of the plague, Pharaoh cries out for relief, apologizes. Another meeting with Moses and he reneges on it. He never, you know, there are various iterations of this, but that's basically the cycle that happens. And, and his heart is always hardened. This is very interesting. The hardening heart stuff, very interesting. Sometimes it says God hardens Pharaoh's heart and sometimes it says Pharaoh hardens his heart. And they seem to be used interchangeably. But I, I kind of pause here to point out, there's no doubt, it's stated explicitly here and then later in, in Romans 9, that God is actively hardening Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh's clearly a willing participant. It says that he's hardened his heart, God's hardening his heart. They work together. Um, there's some element of mystery, but we know from this passage and from Romans that, that it's a combination of those two. So you have all these, all these plagues, the, blood, the Nile River turned to blood, frogs, lice, flies, dead livestock, boils, hail, locusts, darkness. Those are the nine plagues. After all of these cycles, nine of these plagues that are just utterly devastating, you might wonder how long it will continue. You know, it, we're not making any progress here, right? But the most serious plague will end it. The death of all of Egypt's firstborn. The wrath of God visits every house. But at the same time, God calls for faith and obedience from his people. And the only way to escape the judgment for them is to believe and obey the word of the Lord. So the Hebrews are instructed to take an unblemished lamb, sacrifice it, paint its blood on their doorposts, cook it, and have a feast. And God told them that when he sees the blood on the doorposts, he will pass over them. He will pass over that house. So that's where the name Passover comes from. Passover uh, becomes a high feast for the people of Israel from that point forward. 
But again, I want to point out that while thousands of people are unknowingly going to sleep for the last time, God's people are feasting. So this is it for Pharaoh. This is devastation beyond compare. And at this point, he commands the Israelites to leave. It's been a request. He hasn't granted it. But now he tells them, leave. So the great migration begins. Believe it or not, even after all the plagues and after the devastation of thousands of dead people in these Egyptian houses, when they recover from the shock of that, Pharaoh dispatches the army again and pursues them. I don't know how long, how many days that was. I don't think the Israelites could just pack up and leave in a day. So that took some time. And then they're gone, but they're moving slowly. Two million people, women, children, supplies, animals, all this stuff. I'm sure they're moving slowly. So I don't know how long that took, but they're on their way. And the, the Egyptian army is able to catch up to them. So they, they are ready to meet at the Red Sea. They're heading east out of Egypt. They come to the Red Sea. The Red Sea is not a small river. Um, it's a sea. It's, at its widest point, it's very, very wide. I think in that northern area, it, it funnels down and it's small, but I don't think it's small like the Jordan River. So if you're like me growing up, you know, you have the crossing of the Red Sea, then you have the crossing of the Jordan River, and I would just confuse the two in my mind. But this, the Jordan River, I've seen it, and it, I'm told it wasn't much bigger back in those days. A small river, the Red Sea is big, okay? So the, the Israelites are, are staring at the sea in front of them. They've got wilderness on both sides. And the army, the Egyptian army, is approaching from the rear. So they're fearful. Again, they criticize Moses. What have you done? You brought us out here to die. Life was hard in Egypt, but at least we were alive. Moses tells them, do not be afraid. This is another one of those, in my mind, very significant statements of Moses. Do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. Imagine hearing that as an Israelite who's been a slave and now you think you're ready to die and Moses tells you, you're not only going to escape, but you're never going to see these people again. Your oppressors will be gone forever. So at that point, the sea divides, Israel passes through on dry ground. The water, the Bible says the water is a wall on each side. The Egyptians follow. Can you imagine what they were thinking? They've seen the plagues, they've lived through the plagues, they know that the God of Israel can do some amazing things. And now they see the sea has divided. I'm thinking they would be hesitant to enter that. But they did. I mean, what else are they going to do, I suppose? And sure enough, they get in there and the sea returns to normal, they all die. What does Moses do? They're on the east side of, of the sea now. They pause, and they sing and worship God. This is the song we sang last week. Do you guys remember that? Do you think about that song, the words of that song when you're singing it? I do every time. It, this is an amazing thing that God calls us to worship him 
not merely right after something like that, but because of it. He wants us to worship him. And to this day, we sing the Song of Moses, which is about death and destruction for God's enemies. Anyway, it was interesting that we just sang that last week. All right, so from there, they make their way south to Sinai. We think this is pretty much the same area that Moses had just spent 40 years. So they, they start making their way south. Um, I put, I'm going to change this for next time. I put wandering here, but they weren't really wandering at this point. The wandering comes later. They were just moving. God was telling them where to go, and they were pretty steadily moving south. So at, at that point, heading south, the Red Sea would be on their, on their west, and they're headed toward Sinai. I don't think they knew that, but that's where God was taking them. It took about two months to get to Sinai. So I, I always want to help us keep the timeline in mind because it's easy to lose sight of this. You tend to think, oh, 40 years of wandering. That's not really what they're doing here. They're moving very deliberately, and it only takes two months. It's not that far. Um, it takes two months to get to Sinai. We think that they spent about 10 months there in that area once they got there. And the events that occur have profound influence on their future. In fact, this is a big statement, but I think it's true. All subsequent divine revelation throughout the rest of Scripture, all of it, connects in some way to what happens here at Sinai. All the events, Moses receiving the law, the Ten Commandments, all of that, every part of divine revelation for the rest of Scripture connects to what happens here. God gives Moses the details of his law, gives instructions for the tabernacle. I mean, really, other than, than Jesus, the incarnation, death, resurrection, I don't think anything is so significant solemn and profound as the giving of the law. In fact, there's warning of instant death for anyone who approached the mountain. Thunder, lightning, thick clouds, they blew trumpets, it's loud, loud trumpets. It's a solemn event. In all of this, God is using those means, the thunder, the lightning, the clouds, all of it, to instill appreciation of the moral gulf between him as the creator, the most holy creator, and the sinful creation. The Ten Commandments are given. Lots of detailed laws are given. Central to their worship was the tabernacle. I'm going to go into some detail on that in just a moment. But all these, all these laws, all of the um, regulations for the Levites, for washings, everything, in the, the moral law, the Ten Commandments, all of this is given. Um, there were priests before, such as Abel, Noah, Abraham, Jacob. They were all called priests at various points, but we could call them occasional priests. And that, at this point in the giving of the law, those occasional priests are replaced by hereditary priests. It's a hereditary priesthood now. So the, the Levites would carry out all the jobs, all the services associated with worship, associated with the tabernacle. They needed to follow detailed instructions for this whole tabernacle. They needed to follow all the instructions to the letter because of how 
deeply symbolic this was. There's the outer courtyard. So this top view map gives you a, a good feel for what's here. And there's this whole outer courtyard, okay, like an atrium area where anybody could go. Anybody could go in through the gate here. And I, I think any time, you know, sacrifices were happening here on a regular basis. Laver is a big bowl of water for, for ceremonial washings and probably just to clean up because this is a bloody deal going on here. Um, so anybody could, I think, at any time be in the outer courtyard. In that area, there's, um, like I said, the altar and the laver. Then inside the actual tabernacle, the structure itself, two spaces. The first is the holy place. Uh, there's a thick veil separating the, the holy place from the most holy place. Um, in that outer area, there's a lampstand or the candlestick. That was to burn day and night. So if they weren't moving, once they would stop moving, they'd set, they were to set this up. And once it was set up, that, that lampstand was supposed to burn day and night. The table of showbread had fresh bread on it. Every Sabbath, they would put fresh bread. It would be there all week, and then the next Sabbath, they would replace it again. Always 12 lo loaves representing the 12 tribes. And um, I think it represented more than just this, but in Exodus, it, it says that that represented continual thanks to God. I think there are allusions here to Jesus as well. But 12 tribes representing continuous thanks to God. The altar of incense represented reconciled Israelites' prayer and worship ascending to God. So there would always be incense burning here and and the aroma of that rising up to God. Then inside the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant. Only the high priest could enter there once per year, only on the Day of Atonement. So no one but the, the current high priest ever, ever went in there. I'd like to know how it was deconstructed. You know, that would be a nerve-wracking thing to be part of the... It was Levites who tore this down and put it back up, but still, if you're just a regular old Levite and not the high priest, I would be kind of nervous about that. How do you think they found uh, fresh grain for their bread out in the desert? Or is shoe bread, what is it made of? It had to have some kind of grain, I guess. I, I think they had supplies that they plundered and took from the Egyptians. And at this point, it wasn't a really long time, you know. It's like a year. Was it not manna? I don't know if you can make manna into bread. It did last, so I don't know. Well, if their shoes didn't wear out, you know, it was probably right. Yeah, so, yeah, they weren't following all the normal. And the manna lasted for two days on the Sabbath. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. Yes. I'm kind of out of breath. That's, that gets us through the, um, through the outline there. Any thoughts or questions? I've done all the talking so far. That's usually not good. I apologize. I wasn't through last week. That's okay. John's not this week. But um, did you discuss major themes in these different, the way it's broken down here? There's major themes that are discussed. Well, I would ask, what's the point? 
was the main theme with the slavery, with the confrontation, mm -hmm. and even the law. Yeah. And even the liberation. What does Exodus mean? Mm -hmm. Great, great question. If you guys couldn't hear, he's asking, okay, we ran through all these details here. What about themes and overall principles? So, yeah, I want to get to that with the last 10 minutes or so. Any other thoughts or questions? Okay. Um, thinking beyond, let's go to 1 Corinthians 10. know how well you can see that in the back but it's first Corinthians 10 if you want to turn there yourself I'll read the first six verses moreover brethren I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud all passed through the sea all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ but with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things became our examples, to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. I was going to underline this, but the app doesn't let me do that. These things became our examples. So Paul refers, Paul here in 1 Corinthians refers back to the events that we just covered, all these events in Exodus. He speaks of them being under the cloud, passing through the sea, drinking from the rock. So he's saying this to New Testament Christians early, early on. Um, 1 Corinthians is a very early book. Um, so, but he's speaking that to people who have put a lot of this together. They know it, but he's explicitly saying these, these events speak about us and they're recorded for us as an example. So there, there's a spiritual message and application here for Christians. A bunch of them just jump right out at you, I'm sure. But I wanna, I wanna go over them. There are so many types and shadows here, right? Bondage in Egypt. What does that represent? Slave to sin. Yeah, we're slaves to sin. Okay, we're slaves in many ways in our unregenerate state. So yeah, bondage in Egypt represents our spiritual slavery. The Passover lamb, another obvious one, right? I mean, is looking forward to Jesus as the perfect sacrifice. Every aspect of Passover. Have you guys been part of a Passover Seder dinner before? The Fornies used to host one every year and we were invited once. I think we were invited because uh, there's a one point in the Passover meal where you're supposed to go to the, all the people that are feasting go to the door and open the door and they invite in any outsiders. And so it's, it's representing that God's call is to everyone. So even the outsiders are welcome to come in, join the covenant, and be part of the feast. Well, we had been part of the church for a few years, had never been invited to the Forney's house for a Seder. So we knew when they were going to do it, and I circulated word that we'd be outside waiting when they <laughs> issued the invitation. 
So I think they figured they may as well set the right number of places at the table for the Frenches. So we got invited anyway. Probably did not have time to tell you that. Um, every part of Passover is significant. Every element points to something bigger, greater, and spiritual. Okay, so bondage in Egypt, Passover land, the pillar of cloud and fire represented um, Christ's presence with his people. There were issues with the water at Mara and Elim, the bittersweet water um, representing bittersweet experiences of Christians. Manna is itself a type of Christ. He's the bread of life. Uh, water coming from the rock, Jesus is living water. So uh, types and shadows everywhere. Every detail of the tabernacle represented something spiritual. The person and work of Jesus is prefigured by the tabernacle in the wilderness in, in its beauty being only inward, only inner beauty. There was no outward beauty to it. This is just badger skin. No colors here. I mean, drab looking, not fancy at all. But what happened inside was significant. Um, the altar of sacrifice represents, of course, the atoning work of Christ. The ark containing the law, I don't think I mentioned that. Inside the, inside the ark of the covenant, what was kept in there? You guys remember? Yep, the tablets yeah. of the law, jar of manna, and, Moses staff and, the, and the staff that budded. Excellent. Good job. Yep. So th everything in there represented something spiritual. The, the mercy seat Christ's royal throne. So when we come to God through Jesus, the throne of judgment becomes a seat of mercy. And of course, the veil, which was torn at Jesus' crucifixion. The priestly line of Aaron foreshadows Jesus as the great high priest. In fact, when we were studying the book of Hebrews last year, I kept thinking, man, if we don't understand the book of Exodus, I don't think we understand very much of Hebrews at all. Hebrews was, was written to people who knew Exodus inside and out. Um, but every, everything said to the Hebrews in that book presumes an understanding of all of this stuff from our outline today. So hopefully you're, you see that, that these opening books of the Bible, last week Genesis and this week Exodus, are not just stories. They're much more than just an inspired history of events. They're that, and it's great for Sunday school. I'm all for teaching our kids these stories. You have to start there, but they're not just stories inspired by God without error and, and, and facts and so forth. They're filled with illustrations of all the great doctrines of our faith. So Exodus is about deliverance from Egypt, but it's about redemption. It's all about redemption. Any thoughts on that? Well, it's like a, it's, you know, even the point of even the famine and bringing the 70 to Egypt was for a purpose. They went to the best land there is to grow to be millions, mm -hmm. to be many children of God that fulfilled the Abrahamic covenant. 
I make millions. Mm -hmm. And that was a fulfillment of that. Yeah, that was the first one. It's like a, it's an archetype. It's a picture of, of God's people. Egypt's a representative of the world. And, mm -hmm. and our deliverance out of the world. Yeah. A picture of the world. So it's the deliver the children out of the slavery in Egypt and their bondage in Egypt that God raised them up there to be a multitude. Mm -hmm. Bring them through that, out of that, to the promised land. And he's using this world here to raise up a multitude of Christians. And by his same grace, bringing us through, you know, to that ultimate promised land, you know, the new heavens, new earth. Absolutely. So, I mean, if, if these concepts inspire you and get you thinking, you could spend all kinds of independent study time going into the details of this. Really, he's right. Every aspect of, of Exodus is significant. The Red Sea, too, is a reflection of baptism. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Christ going into the desert for 40 days, then going into the mm -hmm. desert for 40 years. And, you know, mm -hmm. coming through, I mean, it's pretty... Yeah, it's about transition. That transition from slavery to the promised land was 40 years. The, um, again, Hebrews, I keep going back to Hebrews, was written to Christians who were in the midst of a 40-year transition, too. After Everything changed when, when Jesus was raised from the dead, but it took 40 years for that to be accomplished and for the for the Bible to be written, for all those things talked about in Hebrews. So, yeah, we could, I mean, we don't have anywhere close to enough time to go into all those details, but it's all significant. It's all important. Um, I have a couple more points to make in the last two minutes or so. The law is, the law that was given to Moses on Mount Sinai is a burden, obviously a heavy burden, but it's also a, a provision. It was a burden because it, it gave all kinds of commands outward for outward obedience, inward obedience in your heart. No one could keep it. So the old covenant could not bring salvation, but those who trusted in God were forgiven in anticipation of the obedience and sacrifice of Jesus. So again, Exodus is all about redemption. The law of Moses was holy and spiritual, Romans 7, but also weak through the flesh, Romans 8. We have no ability to keep the whole law, but that's why God gave the promise of the new covenant at the same time. While he's giving all the, all the laws that are impossible to keep, he also gave the promise of the new covenant. So it's the whole thing, the whole book is about redemption, redemption accomplished. The theme of Exodus is redemption, and the Israelites were literally physically saved, literally physically saved and rescued out of Egypt. But we as Christians are taught foundational truths of our faith through the types and shadows. It's all the time we have. If we had eight weeks on Exodus, I could get excited about that too. But next week we'll move to Leviticus, which is probably less familiar to a lot of us. So that should be fun as well. Thank you. I appreciate you guys. Let's close in prayer. Thank you for listening to Truth and Life. If you enjoyed the series, please subscribe. And remember, from Genesis to Revelation, every book is truth to live by.